1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never
0: really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today is actually a bit of a special episode because we got a collaboration with one of my favorite YouTube channels on YouTube. It's called Eastern Roman History, and welcome to the podcast, Daniel Maynard. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So what made you start a YouTube channel dedicated to just Eastern Roman history or Byzantine history, if you will?
0: Hmm. Uh, I think the idea for it began in my final year of university, where I... So I've had a passion for byzantines mm. and romans
1: who doesn't right for,
0: yeah for for quite a long time and i was i have been watching a few history youtube channels right um, and i was just thinking to myself i like how they they introduce it but yeah. they never go into the kind of detail or about the topics I would like to be able to go into
1: mm.
0: and I was and as I was saying because I was also doing my university uh, undergraduate degree at the time I was thinking perhaps it would be a good idea if I could combine uh, a kind of youtube presentation video a mm-hmm. bit like other people like kings and generals or stuff yeah. like that and also, but also kind of put a academic um emphasis behind it, so have um use primary sources, use yeah. scholarship, use my knowledge of the field as best as I can to
1: uh bring something more to the table yeah um, but something that I love about your channel is how you as are very specific with the sources that you that you write, that you're very specific, like this is a reference, this is a page, this is even the chapter where I found, where I found the source from.
0: And I haven't yeah. seen
1: any other YouTube channel do that, really. So I've seen, as far as I know, you're the only one that does, actually does that, and that is like, wow, that is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I think a part of why I do it is because primary sources are the foundation of our knowledge for history. And I think that it is important to be to know where this information comes from. I think another onus for doing this was, I remember watching a video about the battle of Alexander the Great's battle on the Granicus. Yeah, Uh, And there's and I was, they present the battle, but there's actually two versions of that battle in history. There's the arian version which is the version they use where alexander charges across the river and defeats the persians and then there's another version by a historian called diodorus of sicily where alexander the great uses the advice of Parmenion and crosses with most of his army over to the other side of the river and then in the morning attacks the persians before their uh, aware of him being there and take and removes their advantage of having the river Mm -hmm. um and it's the case of there's no preferable account arian wrote at least uh, about 500 years after the event and Siculus, uh diodorus of sicily wrote about um 200 years Mm -hmm. so neither one is Preferable, as like there's no there's not a correct version, but right. I was thinking that if we have a by showing the primary sources, you get where these things are coming from, mm. you
1: get more of the detail. Now, you it's you've been doing this for a few years already, but are you are you worried that because it's just Byzantine history that you do that you will run out anytime or so material? Um, Fortunately, Byzantine history is very long.
0: Hmm. Um, If you were, it's uh, just from the period I like to uh, encapsulate it because it doesn't have a kind of finite, uh, like a definite beginning is from the beginning of Constantine the Great's reign in 306 to the fall of Constantinople in 1453, which is 1100 years of history uh that's that's longer than um the whole history of some nations combined mm-hmm. um and, and, and it's so that ancient Rome as, well. as well right um for my channel i prefer to do the byzantine yeah. stuff because other channels do cover roman things like the 3rd century crisis or septimius mm. severus or people like that yeah far more uh far more often. yeah. Um, but I, I'm not afraid to do Roman stuff. Like, a couple of years ago, I did a whole uh, series of videos about the Emperor mm. Augustus and how he became emperor, mm. um, which was something that no one had really covered. They kind of go, mm. well, after he defeats Santa, he becomes emperor, and there we go. But that has a whole process to it, which no one had really talked about before.
1: Yeah. So we're going to talk about the Varangian Guard, which is Vikings mm. in the Byzantine history, Empire, and uh, I, I guess my first question is: How did the Vikings find out about the empire? Did they hear from others, or did they just sail into the Mediterranean and end up in Constantinople Trans- by coincidence?
0: Mm. Well, the the uh, Norse from so Scandinavia, uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. Um, they partially in the kind of 8th and 9th century AD, uh, the Norse start trading and they start exploring areas. They end up going to places like Russia, England, and eventually they uh, through this uh, way from going from uh, roughly where Sweden is today, through the rivers, the long rivers like the um, oh, no. and the uh places like that through uh what is now Russia and then they would go down on small ships to Constantinople um which was one of the biggest cities in Europe at the time, if not the biggest. Yeah.
1: So, so they knew about Constantinople already. Yes.
0: Yeah they they uh knew about it um and it was kind of, I believe the Norse term for it is Miklagard. So it's like the, uh, the, it's the city for the Norse. They have, their towns are like small villages in comparison, where we've got several hundred thousand people living in uh, Constantinople with the population fluctuating over the centuries. But it's just, the scale of it was far beyond anything that, a lot of these Norse traders had seen or heard of before and so it had a kind of mystique to it um, and very profitable to trade. So uh, what you have is in the Viking Age, so uh, for a number of reasons which I, I won't go into now, but the Norse start going out and ex- they start exploring. So you have people going up into Iceland and Greenland, like Eric the Red, mm. uh, but also raiding. So you have uh, like places like in England and uh, Paris, people like Ragnar Lothbrok going around and uh, sacking these quite uh, wealthy uh, places like monasteries, and then bringing their spoils back to where they lived or settling. And for the Byzantines, this starts to occur, right? They get their first attack in the turn of the ninth century. There's an attack on a province called the theme, And the theme, which are designed, their army is designed to deal with attacks through the mountains by the Arabs. And so this Viking raid takes them completely by surprise. And which leads to a reform of the province to mm. focus on the Black Sea to protect it from further raids. And although it's not often, the Vikings do come down and continue to raid the Byzantine Empire right up until 1043, which is the last one of these, what you could call a Viking raid. Uh, but the Varangian Guard, um, their story really is introduced in the late 10th century, in 986, under the re- uh, during the reign of Basil II. So Basil II. So this was is... before,
1: before Alexius, right?
0: Yes. So Basil II, he ruled as emperor from 976 to 1025, which is uh, about 100 years before Alexius I came to power. Um, and he had some a lot of trouble in the first 15 to 20 years of his reign he was quite young and he had lots of powerful uh lords and uh courtiers which he had to deal with and these opening years are full of civil war in the byzantine empire so when he, Basil takes power, there's a huge revolt by a man called Bardas Skleros, which eventually manages to defeat. And then in 986, he decides to invade Bulgaria, which is a colossal disaster. And at the Battle of Trajan's Gate, most of his army is killed and he barely escapes with his life. He basically has to fight his way through the Bulgarians to even escape their trap. So it's a huge disaster. And this leads to an immediate revolt by a man called Bardas Phocas, who is a relative of a previous emperor called Nikephoros II Phocas. And uh, Basil II is in a bit of a fix because he has this war with Bulgaria, which is soaking up some of the troops in the Balkans. And the troops in the east have all joined Phocas. So he doesn't have any army to face the revolt. Hmm. Fortunately for him, uh, he has a an em- he has an embassy of sorts with the Russian prince of Kiev, a man called Vladimir. Uh, I, f- I think he's uh, epithetized the Great. He's the man that converts Russia from paganism to Christian Orthodoxy, which you can still see today. Um, he strikes a deal with uh, Vladimir that, so Vladimir will send Basil a large army of Varangians. So Varangians uh, are for the Russians, Norse warriors, which have taken up service, serving with the Russian princes, and actually had a hand helping Vladimir in his reign. So Vladimir will pass on, these Norse warriors to Basil, in exchange for a marriage with his sister, a woman called Anna, which was a great honor for Vladimir. And also uh, he would convert to Christian Orthodoxy. Uh, And this happens. And then in the following years in uh, 988, he receives these Varangians about 6,000 And with them, he is able to crush Focus in two battles and kills him. And the revolt crumbles after his death. And it's uh, this is the beginning of the Rangian Guard. So these 6,000 men form the core of the Imperial Bodyguard. And they will continue to be uh, in Byzantine service right up. Until the turn of the fifteenth century, when they disappear.
1: So, was it normal for Vikings to like become mercenaries and for 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 someone else, and not just raid? Was this a sort of ex- exceptional thing? Hmm. I can't say about
0: whether it was more general for Norse society, that's not, where, that's not something I know about, but it was normal for the Byzantines, the mm. Romans, in previous ages and also in Basil II's own day. Uh, it was very common for them to settle groups of foreigners on their territory and employ them as soldiers or sailors. Uh, this had been happening for hundreds of years. Uh, So like in the 7th century, uh, the emperor Justinian II, he settled a large group of uh, Mardiites, which would be kind of um, something like Maronite Christians in uh, Syria, Palestine, that area. And they were employed as sailors for uh, 200 or so years. in the ninth century there's a whole group called the kuramites which are kind of kurdish persian group which en masse emigrates to the empire and they get incorporated into the army and also the emperor had um one of their imperial bodyguards which they they had several of uh, made up the main after basil ii but they did have several um, The Vardiriotai are a group of Hungarian settlers in uh, Macedonia, which were employed. Um, So it was very common for the Byzantines to have foreign units in their uh, normal service. They weren't, um, the Byzantines, they were often a small part of the army. So like if the Varangian guard were employed in a military action they would be a elite unit as part of an army they wouldn't be mm. the army itself mm.
1: um, but is this, is this where we get the ruins instruction in the hagia sophia where it says health was here
0: yes yes so the uh this comes to the two roles the ranking guard played for um half of their history. So, at first, um, the varangian Guard had two roles. The first was to be employed during campaigns. So, uh, f- a famous uh, military action for them was at the Battle of Boroia, under the reign of John II Komnenos. So, he's the son of Alexis I. Um, the varangian Guard are the, were the decisive element in defeating the Pecheneg horde which was attacking the empire at the time because with their axes they were able to to hack into the wagon fort the Pechenegs had created. Um, uh, Their other duty was to guard the emperor of course. Um, As imperial bodyguards they would have been employed throughout the imperial palace. They had to guard the imperial reception hall so when the emperor received visitors the varangian guard were in charge of looking after the treasury uh they also employed as prison guards uh torturers um, and also in processions in the capital so the emperor would always have varangian guards around him mm. uh they would also uh take part in ceremonies, in festivals, and there are, and instructions for what the Varangian guard was supposed to do in these ceremonies do survive in documents. Um, And uh, yes, so those were the two main roles. After the sack of Constantinople in 1204 by the fourth crusade, the Varangian guard uh, their first function of being employed as a battlefield unit uh, stops. There's this is uh, there's not enough of them to field in a battlefield, but they do accompany the emperor during campaign. Um, and often when he was on campaign and took up residence in a city, they would guard the keys of that city. So they would be in charge of his security.
1: So... Uh, you mentioned that they were in charge of guarding the treasury, and I want to know, did they ever, do you think they ever considered, let's raid the treasury, get away with it, and never come back again? Um, well, the trouble with that is, if they did do that, the,
0: um, the emperor would never employ them again. Mm-hmm. But um, actually, the Vranging Guard have a reputation for incorruptibility. Um, they were incredibly reliable, and in fact, uh, there is a kind of—I wouldn't say myth, but maybe a assumption—that all mercenaries are unreliable. But the in Guard, uh, because they're well paid, very well disciplined, and incredibly loyal to the emperor, um, they did have, they had this reputation for being very reliable very trustworthy and also um, incorruptible. That's not to say that they didn't take advantage of their uh, situation uh, mm. in the late uh, late Byzantine period. So in the 14th century, there was a, uh, a story that uh, officials visiting the Imperial Palace had to pay the Varangians to enter the building. Um, But uh, typically, the Varangians were paid well enough that they didn't need to resort to being um, uh, corrupt. And actually, in the whole history of the Varangian Guard, there are only two instances where the Varangians actually turned against the emperor they were supposed to protect. The first was in the was in ten forty two against um there was a whole situation uh one might even call it a revolution in the capital where the emperor michael v deposed his mother-in-law uh adopted mother zoe and this annoyed everyone and there was a whole split in the capital that there was basically a civil war in the city of constantinople and the varangian guard uh divided in two because half of them were loyal to the dynasty that just been kicked out and the other half were loyal to michael v who was also emperor so Mm. uh there's that and also the other time was in 1078 um when they tried to murder nikki forest iii um they were drunk a lot of them had been very annoyed when one of their number had been executed for murdering a prisoner and they took it out on a parade on Nikifor the third fortunately the other palace guards managed to uh, defeat them and they were given an amnesty and things very quickly reconciled but those are the only two instances that
1: rangians actually turned against their master but how did they view how did the emperor view them where where, did, where is was barbarians as they were the, from the north or were they just employees
0: mm. um, well they most they most certainly were barbarians to the emperor uh, but that that kind that comes under the fact that all foreigners to the Byzantine emperors were barbarians mm. they were the pinnacle of civilization, and anyone else was uh an inferior barbarian to varying degrees um mm. but that didn't mean they didn't respect them in and incredibly so so the varangians uh they're very they they do get lauded quite a bit in the sources so like the uh the they're very famous uh their axes become synonymous with the varangian guards so many times in the sources they they are called the Imperial Axe-bearers mm. um, or the uh, Celtic uh, Axe-bearers or some variation thereof. Um, and, uh, and actually in later centuries, when the regiment becomes largely or almost entirely composed of Englishmen, they, uh, the name becomes uh, Inglobarangoi, Inglow-verang- Uh, English Varangians, because they get, um, it's almost like a a very specific group, and this kind of, you can conjure it up in your mind, and of fearsome, but very loyal and respected warriors that protect the emperor. So, yes, they were barbarians, but they were very respected, very much. Um, a force to be reckoned with, even in
1: Byzantine society. So, we talked a little bit about how the emperor viewed them, but how did the citizens of Constantinople view them? Did they view them with fear? Did they view them with respect or awe? And are there were impressive sites to see? Um, a bit of fear
0: and a bit of respect. Um, a bit of fear because. Um, The Varangians were often tasked with doing the dirty work, so to speak. So, um, for instance, when Isaac Comnemnus arrested the patriarch, he got his Varangian guards to do it, and they walked into the Church of St. Sophia, dragged the patriarch out during mass, and hauled him off to a prison. Um, And this also comes back to the fact that they were... um, they're usually employed to, when they were guarding prisons, uh, torture people, they would do that, um, arrest people. Um, and so there is an element of fear. There are also these huge warriors with great big axes um, and also other weapons. But uh, fear, but also respect, That comes back to the they are loyal, they are powerful. They are uh, incorruptible.
1: So was it ever an occasion that they were allowed to go back to Scandinavia or did they serve for the rest of their lives when they were first employed as a guard? Um, I don't think there's one particular answer for this.
0: Um, so uh, when the regiment was more Scandinavian. Um, So uh, uh, just for those that don't know, so there are two phases for the Ranking Guard. The first, the Scandinavian phase, when the regiment was largely composed of either Russians or Scandinavians, Um, this is from uh, when they were first created in the 980s under Basil II sorry, uh, to uh, the reign of Alexis I, actually, in the 1080s. Um, actually, the Battle of Hastings in 1066 is responsible for this because huge numbers of Anglo-Saxons migrate to the Byzantine Empire and settle in it, and they are employed in the Varangian Guard. And very quickly, uh, in the 12th and then by the end of the twelfth century, the entire regiment, save for a very small percentage, are Englishmen. Um, but coming back to your point about um, the recruitment, um, so you would have bands of unit of Scandinavians coming into the empire and then serving for a time in the guard. Um, a good example is Harold Hardrada, who saved for a, a period as the, as one of the captains in the Varangian Guard. And then he goes back to Europe and becomes King of Norway. Um, but other people, um, I think more with the Anglo-Saxon settlements, uh, lived and also died in the empire. So they would have, um, the english you would have had settlements and they would have sent people to constantinople to take up service in the guard done their service and then retired or you would have had adventurous people coming from places like sweden russia england to take up service and then when they'd done their uh, service return home so for in sweden where a lot of the original Varangian Guard came from, uh, we have rune stones from Varangians that had died, uh, as they record on the rune stones in Greece. And so, mm. one has to ask who put up the rune stones? Presumably their families or their friends, um, and assumably they would have gone back to them once they finished their service, or maybe even stayed in Byzantium. And we do have. Uh, we do know of people that started as Ranking guards and then went on to either live or serve in other roles in the Byzantine Empire. So uh, a very good example is in 1395. So this is right in the end of the Varangian guard period, um, where we know that a one of the universal justices of the Romans, which was a incredibly prestigious and important judicial role in the empire at that point was filled by a former Varangian.
1: So, uh, uh, I, was trying to, I was trying to say something. Yeah, uh, we're, and I'm, I'm referring to the Norse in Normandy right now, not the Norse in... in... Scandinavia, but were they a threat at this point, or were they still set- settling in? Hmm. Well, um, because it's well known that the Norse were a threat to the Byzantine Empire. Well, the, nor- the Norse
0: refers to this refers to Scandinavia, so of Sweden, course. Norway, Denmark. The Normans refer to no. the nor the to the Norse. So I, I, I can understand the confusion because I meant the Normans. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Normans uh, under uh, Rolo, uh, they settle in Normandy and uh, the Normans are just as adventurous as their ancestors, the Norse, because um, they end up getting everywhere in a sense. They, you've got Normans in Anatolia, uh, the Principality of Antioch after the First Crusade is largely run by Normans. Uh, the Normans kick out the Byzantines from uh, Italy and the Arabs from Sicily. And and most famously, of course, you have the Norman invasion of England in 1066, which um, which also ties into the history of the ranking guard. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, I can a little bit. Um, so... Um, so 1066, what happens? So Edward the Confessor, the King of England, dies. He then has a uh, has a power struggle for who wants to be king. You have Harold uh, Godwinson, who, Anglo-Saxon, he becomes King of England. But you also have claims from William, Duke of Normandy, mm-hmm. and also Harold Hardrada, who had served in the Franking Guard. Uh, also claim the throne of England through his uh, ancestors, uh, like Canute and so on. Um, And uh, Harold defeats uh, Hardrada at Stamford Bridge in September. And then Harold is defeated by William in uh, October. And so after that, William takes over England, and he the Anglo-Saxons, a lot of nobles or people that get pushed out by uh, William. So uh, he also, there's rebellions uh, that happen against William. There's also um, the prince, the Anglo-Saxon prince, which is still a factor in Europe. Um, so it's very uncertain times for the Anglo-Saxons in England. And a lot of, lots of them decide to emigrate. So some of them go uh, around Europe and or join the the prince in Hungary. But a large portion of them decide to go to Constantinople. And um, a lot of the uh, they arrive roughly right at the beginning or in the ten seventies. The Anglo-Saxon Saxons start appearing in fairly large numbers with their families and so on in the Byzantine Empire, which at this period in the 1070s is in a uh, steep decline. It's in a complete mess. Um, and they are allowed to settle and they are employed in the Varangian Guard and are a huge help to Alexius I in his. First years because they provide this big source of manpower which he desperately needs during the 1080s because he is being attacked by the Normans in Italy. He's being attacked by the Pechenegs and also the Turks, uh, one after the other. And you almost have a, a replay of the Battle of Hastings between the Normans and the English in. Byzantium uh, in 1081, because at the Battle of Dyrrhachium, where the Normans in their invasion, they crossed over from Italy to Greece and they attacked this town called Dyrrhachium, which you have to take to be able to head and land. And uh, Alexios arrives with his army and also the Ranging Guard, which have just been imbued with large numbers of Englishmen And the Varangians, they manage to defeat one of the wings of the Norman army and then pursue them. Uh, And then the Normans take the opportunity to catch the Varangian guard while they're out uh, in the open and completely destroy them. Um, But they keep cropping back up. So there's obviously a lot of... um, Scandinavians and also Englishmen which were able to top up the Varangians fairly consistently and managed to do so for uh, the rest of the empire's history until Varangians disappear in 1404. Um, so the, we don't have exact numbers but the amount of English which emigrate to Byzantium and are topped up over time is enough to keep the regiment as a as a significant elite uh, unit for the rest of the 11th century and the 12th century, and then as a small bodyguard unit for the 200 years following
1: the Fourth Crusade. So, how do the original and draw viewed the Anglo-Saxons, do they view them as competition, or do they embrace the massacre? Hmm. Unfortunately,
0: we don't have exact inter-Varangian relations, but we do know that um, I would say that they were accommodating, uh, and I say this because originally the So the Varangians who were originally coming to Constantinople, um, they had their own church, which was dedicated to St. Mary and St. King Olaf in this was in Constantinople. Mm. And this was the chapel of the regiment for uh, the 11th century and continued to continue to be until the Uh, creation of another chapel for the English uh, part of the Rangian Guard, uh, which was dedicated to St. Nicholas and St. Augustine of Canterbury.
1: Are these churches still available today to be seen, or are they sacks? Um, I don't
0: believe... That's a good point. I believe both of them are were demolished after the city had been conquered. Mm. Um, One of them, eh. so um, the first church to St. Mary and Olaf, uh, to Mary and Olaf, um, this was eventually sold off by the Frankian guard um, to a nunnery. So even in Byzantine, even in the Byzantine period, the first Varangian church was sold off, and they entirely moved to the second church to the Varangians, which I believe has been located. It, it is just a kind of remains, but it has been located in Constantinople. I think it's near the Palace of uh, Palachonai in the north northern corner of the city which was also near where their headquarters was Um, but uh and you see a um i think it's a good illustration of the change in uh the makeup of the frankians so you have the scandinavians and then they accommodate the english and then eventually because the regiment is almost entirely english they just move
1: to the one chapel now I, I want to know, because I I don't know if this was when the Norse were pagans still, but when they became, sorry if I say that wrong, were yeah.
0: they,
1: they, did they have to convert to Christianity or did they get achieve keep the paganism? I believe...
0: I'm afraid I don't know the exact answer. I assume they either were Christians or uh, had to convert, at least nominally, but may have been tolerated. I'm afraid I can't give you a definite answer for that.
1: But It's well known that Constantinople was always this welcoming for other religion and refugees, right? So should have thought that they should be able to keep their religion. Well, typically what
0: happens is that uh, a group will, often a non-Christian group, in many cases, will come to the Empire and then uh, usually because they quite like the look of it, uh, they decide to convert to Christianity. So this mm. was true with the Kuramites, who were um, like a I suppose one would call it a, it's like a fusion. The religion they worship was a fusion between Islam and Zoroastrianism, but they all converted to Christianity after they settled in the empire. And also you did have uh, Muslims inside the city as well as Catholics uh, of Constantinople, that is, and also Jews within the empire. Um, so, uh one can assume that perhaps they did convert to Christianity, however nominally or devotedly it was, um, just because the pay is good, or maybe uh, the Vrangians were very well respected. It, it, um, there are certain attractions to being Christian in Constantinople.
1: So was, it, was it like the Ottoman Empire, where you, if you weren't Christian, if you weren't Muslim, you had to be attached to Was it the same in Cond- in the Byzantine era, that you had to be taxed, extra touched if you were Christian.
0: Hmm. They, the Byzantines, did have certain laws. Byzantine laws, not my strong point, but mm. I do know that they did have laws. Uh, some laws against um, different groups. So, like a Muslim couldn't become an official or a pagan couldn't become an official. Um, And I think it was probably a lot more of the case socially. So like the Jews in the empire were tolerated but not liked that much. But um, that was probably true for most of the rest of Europe at the time um so but the the romans uh, the byzantines could also have a dim view of their own subjects so um when alexius I took the capital uh, of constantinople um one of the historians for his reign um ha- names his units his troops under his control as the, uh, the Romans, who which is what they called themselves, the Macedonians and also uh, the Paphlagonians. So uh, the, the Byzantines didn't quite like some of their own provincials that much. So um, the fact they didn't like many foreigners settling in their empire is probably not exceptional.
1: Uh, no, I'm curious when the Varangian the, the Guard, sorry if I, get, don't get, I don't get it right for some reason, They how are the laws with marriage in in the guards? Were they allowed to take marriage hmm. from, uh, let's say, Constantinople women or were, were that strictly forbidden? Were they not allowed to settle down? It's, it's interesting. So
0: the Varangian Guard we do have a lot of information about compared to other imperial bodyguards, but it's not exactly ample, but uh, they were, they would have had wives. So like, as I was saying with the Norse, uh, with the Scandinavian Varangians, they would have had families either back in Sweden or places like that, or, or maybe had families in Constantinople that they made during their lifetime. Um, There is a example of a Varangian who uh, his daughter married a uh, Byzantine doctor in Constantinople. Hmm. So um, inter-Roman, inter-Byzantine and Varangian relations did happen. Um, But the regiment was also very self-contained. They did look after themselves very much. Uh, They did. They were very respectful for, with the population they were dealing with um apart from the torture and prisonings mm. and so I'm sure on. They but, enjoyed but that. that was that was yeah that was typically imperial orders mm. um, but with um there is an example of how the rangian Guard kept their own justice so they uh, the rest of the Roman army had Roman judges, uh, the rest of the Byzantine army had judges to maintain order in the army. Uh, but the Varangian Guard seem to have had their own. Um, there is an example where one of the Varangian Guard, a guardsman, raped a woman, hmm. and then the Varangian Guard punished this uh, criminal by allowing the woman that he had raped to kill him and then they gave her her gave her his property hmm. um, it, it's an anecdote about but i think it's fairly illustrative of how the Ranging guard maintained
1: justice and also interacted with the people in the empire so if they were already married like had a scandinavian wife did they bring them alone or did them, did they leave them in Stan- back in scandinavia I think, I think it was,
0: I can't say there's any evidence, but I think it would depend on the individual. Mm. So maybe you have an adventurer that goes off to fight in the Varangians and maybe comes back after several years to his family, or maybe he brings them with them to settle in Constantinople like the Anglo-Saxons did, or maybe they went to Constantinople as a bachelor and maybe made a family while they were there. Um,
1: All the possibilities are open, I think, on this one. Yeah. So, um, something I didn't get asked in the beginning is how long Hmm. time did the journey take from Scandinavia to Constantinople? Well, it would have happened by, typically, it would have happened by sea.
0: So, uh, we actually have an example of and not so much how long, but we can guess the rough, rough distances between mm. uh, the locations. So a Varangian from Scandinavia typically would go down through Russia along the rivers, then down into the Black Sea, and then along the Black Sea to Constantinople. And then they take mm. up service with the emperor. Um. Someone coming from in- England. Uh, Would probably, if they went overland, just have to walk straight there or um, go to a major port, uh, either sail around uh, Spain and into the Mediterranean to Constantinople, or go to a port city like um, uh, Venice or something and then go from there. Um, Or if they were in a settlement, uh, it wouldn't have been too far away because you just have to walk down from wherever you lived in uh, along the Black Sea for, to uh, Constantinople.
1: To take several months, to take weeks, a year. Um, it would probably be a.
0: Ma- it would probably be a matter of months, especially if you went with a lot of people. Uh, because of the logistics involved. Um, So yes, it it would not be overnight, but Mm. that was, it would also be true for a lot of other people just going from place to
1: place. That would take a lot of time. So I want to thank you so much for coming. I think we covered the basic of the Verenian guard. Should we just just cover
0: the end of the regiment? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, So I, I have said how the Vrangian Guard was formed. it's also important to talk about when it comes to an end. And unfortunately, we don't exactly have a Vrangian Guard was disbanded then. It just doesn't exist. But the last time the Vrangian Guard are mentioned is in 1404 when, and it's actually mentioned by a foreign source, a, a uh, english or welsh historian called adam of usk he went on he went to rome in 1404 and he met an ambassador from uh constantinople and he told adam that uh in constantinople uh, there were axe bearers of british race still there so um there is a an inkling that they made it up to that point. And uh we also have other sources that refer to the Rangians uh or at least indirectly to them a few years before. So like the Emperor John the Seventh sent a letter to Henry the Fourth talking about the English in Byzantine service, as well as um the last actual mentions by the Romans themselves to the rangians only a few years before, in sort of like 1395, 1396, that kind of period. What happens after 1404, uh, nobody knows. They're never mentioned again.
1: You don't, think, you don't think they were eliminated, that they were just killed off?
0: No. Uh, why would you? Hmm. Um, it, it may have been the case. I mean, these are all guesses, but um, they may have just been dismissed. We can't afford you anymore because the empire in the 15th century was penniless. Um, they, may, they, they may have been there, but just no one mentioned them. Um, there is a record of 200 foreigners being in uh, Byzantine service in the siege of Constantinople in 14. 53 but who those f- 200 foreigners are it's anyone's guess they could be uh, they could be Latins they could be they could even be Greeks from areas that aren't owned by the Empire um, so they might be sorry be included in that number but there's no evidence to say one or the other so yeah so we don't know but the last time they appear is fourteen oh four.
1: You think it's most likely that they just went back to Scandinavia or settled elsewhere when when they were done in fourteen oh four? I don't know. I really don't
0: know. I, I can't say uh, the trouble is one guess is as good as the other. Mm-hmm. So
1: But if I remember correctly, this was during the Black Plague as well, right?
0: Uh the Black Death happened. Uh, about sixty years earlier, in 14, mm. uh, 1347 for the uh, Byzantines, that's mm. when it first appeared. Um, but now the Varangian Guard still was still in the empire right up until the end of that mm. of the thirteen hundreds. Um, but, but
1: yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I want to say that before we go, this is a collaboration between Eastern Roman History on YouTube, and this is a two-parter, and you will find the two part on Daniel's YouTube page, Eastern Roman History, which will be up hmm. soon, and uh, this is you will find the first part on my podcast and the second part on his YouTube channel. So if he says part one and it's a part one on the title and part two doesn't show up. The link will be in the description to Daniel's YouTube page. I highly recommend checking it out if you want to learn more about Roman history. Do you have anything else you wish to promote? Anything you should uh, put plug on the social media where people can find you?
0: Uh well, uh, just so this first parts about the Rangian Guard, and the part I'll be doing will be about the Viking attacks on the Byzantine Empire, which I mentioned earlier in this podcast. But mm. uh, and I'll go into more depth and detail uh, there. But um, no, I don't think so. Just uh, I hope you'll have a check out some of. Uh, uh, um, try that again if you check out uh uh well that happened well uh well well uh, his channel well that aged well thank
1: you very much. well (laughs) that
0: aged well so i've been looking at some of your podcasts and they uh they're good i've been enjoying them and uh if if you like byzantine history check out my channel perhaps you'll find
1: something you enjoy it's definitely one of my favorite channels on youtube at the moment and uh Next week, we will have Adrian Goldsworthy to talk about the Roman army. Mm-hmm. And this, so that will definitely be interesting. We also got an episode about Hannibal coming up. So stay tuned for those episodes. And we are on Instagram under well.h12. We are also on the stereo which is a live form of live podcast that where you can chat with us live, We where i not just interview historians. I interview anyone from porn stars to Instagram influencers to friends kind of within comedy fields. So definitely check that out. This has been about well that as well. You can find part two on Daniel Maynard's channel, Eastern Roman History. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.